I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Uh, I had a very unusual request this week. Go on. From Ed. Oh, yes. So so you texted me the other day. Do you want to tell people what you texted me about? That basically a friend of mine is having a, a big birthday and she wanted some tunes now, from the 1980s and was wondering if I could DJ. And I'm sort of slightly reluctant to DJ on the grounds it's not my natural skill set. Well, this, this is what initially struck me as interesting, that somebody would ask that of you. You know, if you're thinking... Do you think it might be a case of mistaken identity? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, is there another Ed in her phone that she maybe. makes text by mistake? Like, why Why do you think she was asking Sheeran, you to DJ? Maybe Ed Sheeran. Possibly so. Yeah. Why Why do you think she was asking you to DJ in the first place? You're not known for it. No. I think I think we've known each other for a long time. And <laughs> seek confession time. And uh, when I was at university, I there was some Labour Club disco or something that I tried to persuade her to come to because I was worried there'd be nobody there, which was true, because the sort of Labour Club disco felt like a sort of slight contradiction in terms <laughs> on the grounds that we weren't the coolest people on the on the <laughs> on the planet. And I think I seem to remember her saying that she walked in to see me and sort of lots of crates of un undrunk <laughs> beer and then sort of fled. So maybe maybe this is a sort of way of kind of saying, you know, you know, what did I miss at that party when nobody turned up? But there's the association in her mind of you and, di- and discos. Yeah. Which can't be true of many people on the planet. Not no, that many people true. are thinking Ed Miliband and I discos. I think we should give people a little bit of a insight into your excellent choices, though. Well, so, so Ed said, I need some cheesy party music from the 80s and 90s. And I did, I did run a mobile disco. As a teenager, he used to do a lot of mobile discos at Macclesfield Rugby Club. Did lots I, of people come to it? Well, I have to say I wasn't that great at it. You surprised me, actually. So I did one gig uh, when I was a bit older, maybe like 19 or 20, where it was somebody's wedding reception at Macclesfield Liberal Club. And nobody danced all night. I tried 
every single different style of music. Nobody danced at all, except for in desperation, I put on Losing My Religion by R.E.M., which the dance floor then filled. I then played something similar to that straight afterwards, and it emptied again. That was the only song that... And I was so embarrassed that at the end of the night, I squatted down beneath my disco decks behind the flashing lights and I just sat on the floor until the room had emptied because I couldn't make eye contact with the people whose wedding I'd ruined so I've got a certain amount of anxiety what was their wedding it was it was just a wedding did they not do the first dance no no I mean it was it was a very and what very... was the reason for it and I don't why know was, why was losing my religion so popular I don't know unless they were a bunch of people who'd recently lost their religion I mean I've got got no idea um I mean if anybody you've got can espouse any theories on that feel free to email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com but i'm slightly worried that you've asked me for advice and you know that that is some of my experience of doing mobile i mean i'm just going to give people some of the sort of highlights here sweet dreams are made of this by the eurythmics gimme 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 abba can't get you out of my head kylie tainted love soft cell wake me up before you go go walking on sunshine walk like an egyptian Things can only get better. Um, don't stop believing. Hey Jude, which I thought was an interesting. That's ending. the end of the end of yeah. the night. You see, you want people leaving. Yeah, no, 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 no. As they, as they walk really off down the good, street. I tell yeah, you yeah. Well, we'll see. You know, you you. I'll report some... back. Do do. I'm really grateful though. So are you going to stand there behind the deck? No, you're not going to get on the mic and do some patter. Here's one that's gone from the charts, but not from our hearts. It's Dream, <laughs> and things can only get better. Uh, maybe maybe I could have a little earphone and you can tell me what to say. <laughs> I think on the evidence of what I just said, I'm not sure what a good idea that was. Well, I think it would be quite a good idea. Yeah. Well, let, let us know. I will. Goes. I didn't put any songs with actions in there, like a conga or the birdie song or anything like YMCA? that. YMCA? Yeah, I didn't put YMCA. Mm. You were asking for cheesy and I left out the YMCA. That's I'm al- already che- feeling inadequate. Pretty cheesy. No, it's, it's great. It's a great list. Well, let us know how it goes. Trying to explain to you how to use Spotify was a lot like, you know, trying to explain to your granny how to use the timer <laughs> on a video recorder. <laughs> But I think you're there or thereabouts, right? Yeah, I think it's a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, so what are we talking about this week then? This week we're talking about voter registration. Uh, there is a general election in the offing and we have a real crisis in this country of people being registered. Millions of people we still think are missing from the electoral register. There's a big gap between voting of older people and younger people. That gap has not always been there. Some people think it has, but it wasn't there 30 or 40 years ago, but it's there now. We'll be talking to an organization in this country that is trying to get people to register to vote, an organization called My Life, My Say. Uh, Somebody from the Resolution Foundation have done research on voter turnout among uh, younger people and older people and some of the reasons for that. And we'll be talking to somebody from the United States. They've got real problems with voter registration. But one good thing they have done uh, is around uh, people registering for a driving license automatically becoming registered to vote. And we're going to be talking about what's happened in a particular state, Oregon, around this issue. And we're trying something new on this week's podcast, something called Cheerful People. Yes. There are so many people doing great work in so many different fields. And, and basically, Ed and I are thinking, how do we get to meet that person and have a little chat with them? Exactly. So we're, we're going to do something new on the podcast where uh, we get somebody on for five or ten minutes at the end and just chat to them uh, about what they're up to. And this week, it's Anna Taylor from the UK Student Climate Network. They are arranging this big climate strike this coming Friday, and we're going to be talking to Anna about that. 
So what's your reason to be cheerful? I went to something amazing the other night. Now, it has it's come up in conversation on a number of occasions. On the, the Muppets? The other one. It's the Beatles. The it's the Beatles. Oh. It's like, I'm, I'm Beatles obsessive. And the world's best Beatles historian is a guy called Mark Lewison. He is going on tour around the country talking about the Abbey Road album. And he invited a few people the other night. Select. A select few people, Beatles nerds. You're part of the select. I am. To watch a preview. And I got to of go his film. Of, of his his show. It's a live tour right, that right. he's doing around the Abbey Road album, and people should go and see it. And I think when it goes out on tour, as of next week, it's going to be a couple of hours long. He was still at the editing stage, so it was three and a half, closer to four hours, and I just got to sit and wallow in Beatles trivia and facts that I hadn't come across before. He's unearthed a tape of the Beatles having a board meeting, which changes your understanding of how the Beatles ended. It's so good, and I got to go and see the extended version, so that's my reason to and be And you cheerful. weren't bored after three and a half hours? Okay, it could have been six hours as far as I was Are concerned. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I you mean, weren't uh, fidgeting, wanting to go to the loo? No, well, there was an interval. I mean, I always right. enjoy an interval. Um, and, and the finished thing isn't going to be as nerdy as this. It's going to be for you if you're interested in the Beatles, but also if you're just sort of interested in music and culture generally. It's going to be around the country. The tour is called Hornsey Road, not Abbey Road, and I won't ruin why that is. That's something you can find out when you go and see Mark Lewis and talk about Abbey Road. Sounds great. And talking of um, uh, events that go on for a few hours, I went to a wedding uh, last week of somebody who's very close to me, who used to work for me, Jill Cuthbertson, and I'm really delighted for her. She got married in Scotland. Fantastic weather, which is not always true in Scotland. Sylvia was in Perth. She's married a lovely guy called Mo. He used to be Amber Rudd's special advisor, but don't let that put you off. I'm really happy for her. She basically worked her socks off for me. She ran my diary and, and really ran my life. And I always felt a bit guilty because I kind of think maybe this is one good thing about me not becoming prime minister or another good thing, which is I fear that Jill would not have got married or, uh, you know, <laughs> found happiness, but she'd have been spending all her time working for me. Uh, so I think there is a sort of cause and effect here, uh, which is, uh, you know, me um, kind of losing the election uh, and Jill becoming happy. It married. all worked out for the best. Yes, exactly. There may be people who disagree on that. But, no, indeed, yeah. indeed. Anyway, it's a more consolation, but I'm really pleased for her. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are joined now by Laura Gardner, who is Research Director at the Resolution Foundation and was the author of that foundation's Vote Face report on voter turnout, and Meta Coban, who is a co-founder and CEO of My Life, My Say, and also Labour councillor uh, here where we record the podcast in, in my attic in Stoke Newington. you got There's, any issues you'd like yeah, to raise? Yeah, so the, there was a bin on the, the <laughs> next road along that seems to have gone. What's going on? Is that cuts? Oh, well, I mean, I'm here to talk about my registration. <laughs> <laughs> talk about. All right. <laughs> but of course, we can... Uh, Trying to hold you up. accountable. Yeah, 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 Meta, yeah. there are always very difficult constituents that you've got. And, yeah. you know, Jeff is basically one of them. I feel that like he's avoided the question. Yeah, yeah. I think that's sensible, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. Um, so, so, Laura, can we start by asking you, how has turnout in UK elections changed over time? I mean, both both overall, but specifically amongst younger voters. Okay, sure. So um, if we look back to, say, the, the 60s, which is sort of the period since which we've got pretty good data, there was a big drop in overall turnout 
Uh, it kind of started in the early 90s. I think uh, the low point was 2001. Turnout was below 60% in that election, having been mid to high 70s in uh, the 60s and 70s. Been slowly creeping back up since then, closer to 70% in 2017, but still quite a bit lower than the sort of post-war era. When you think about age, there's been an even starker change. So some people think that, you know, young people have always been a bit disengaged with politics, not quite getting themselves together, and therefore always less likely to vote. Actually, that's not the case. Roll back to the 60s and 70s, very similar turnout for younger and older groups, maybe slightly lower, five percentage points lower for younger people. Big gap opened up in the 90s. So throughout the 21st century, young people have been much less likely to vote than older people, maybe 20 percentage points less likely if you compare those in their 20s to those in their 70s. So we've had a decline in turnout overall, but I think even more importantly, a big turnout gap opening up by age. And, and have you looked at what the reasons are behind that? Yeah, I think I've got three reasons. If you can bear with me, I'll do them quickly. So the first one is whether you vote in an election has become more related to when you vote in the, whether you voted in the previous one. And young people have become much more likely to vote in their first election for which they're eligible. Uh, so we've had a drop. Less up, likely. Sorry, much less yeah. likely to vote yeah. in the election in which they're first yeah. eligible. So that's happened. And then that's had a stronger path dependence, stronger feed through effect to subsequent elections. Second one renting, private renting, much less likely to register when you're renting privately. That's become more insecure. We know that many more young people are renting privately today than previously. Less attached to communities, maybe moving around more, kind of hardly surprising that you're less likely to get on the register and vote. And the third one relates to attitudes. So when you ask young people whether they care about what happens in the election, there's been a big drop off in the proportion that care since the 90s. So I think we can look at, you know, that building the habit young in terms of first time voting, Big problems that we know exist for lots of reasons in the private rented sector, feeding through to democratic engagement and something about how young, engaged young people as a big group are with politics. I don't, I remember be, first being eligible to vote and it just felt exciting. Like anything like, oh, it's my national insurance card. That felt exciting. <laughs> being allowed to vote in an election, that felt exciting. I think that might say more about, about you than it does about <laughs> young people. <laughs> I've never been excited about my national insurance number. But yeah, I certainly think some of us, maybe those of us that are engaged with politics have experienced that. But if you look across the country, it could be related to citizenship education. It could be related to how far people feel from uh, politicians in Westminster. But we have seen this drop off in engagement, drop off in first time voting. Um, and that is unfortunately feeding through as people age throughout their lives. So if we've got a turnout problem now and we don't arrest some of that, what might happen in the future? Did it change in 2017? So this is a really contested issue, the so-called youth quake. Was it a youth quake or just a small tremor? I think some of the initial analyses after the election said massive increase in young people, those in their late teens and early 20s voting. That's what's changed. Some of the more considered analyses that came a bit later showed that it wasn't quite a big, as big a change as we thought using better data. The, the, the only really kind of significant increase wasn't the kind of students on campus. It was young people in their late 20s and early 30s. So 2017 marked a step in the right direction in terms of narrowing that age turnout gap, but not the kind of sea change that was first thought. Meta, tell us about the uh, story behind My Life, My Say, uh, why you set it up and what it does. Yeah, so My Life, My Say is broadly focused on getting more young people engaged in politics. Uh, so it's a non-partisan platform. The reason why we set it up was because uh, when I was in university and where I grew up in Hackney, too often young people from underrepresented communities feel sort of 
unheard and powerless. And what we wanted to do was to find a platform where we can really empower them to to have a voice in politics. So we set it up in, in 2013. Uh, since then, we actually engaged with you, Ed. Uh, yeah, I yeah. You, you spoke at one of our events when we first set it up. But since then, you know, we've run a number of uh, registration campaigns, uh, working with the likes of Tinder and Uber, trying to get young people registered to vote. Uh, but it's all about trying to empower those. Because even when we talk about youth engagement and how do you engage young people, I think the question is wrong from the outset because it assumes that young people are one big homogenous group. You know, there are lots of different intersectionalities that we have to consider and how we engage different sorts of groups. So, I mean, Laura touched upon some of those um, when we looked at sort of the analysis of the 2017 election. So I think that's really important to sort of distinguish. What works in terms of your campaigns over the last five or six years? What's What's been the most effective? So I think what, What's worked in terms of voter registration is obviously having the tech companies on board just because they have a huge uh, geographic yeah. and sort of social reach, as well as also making sure that you've got the right influencers on board. And, you know, not just sort of your ordinary sort of uh, celebrities who are more on TV, but people that young people connect to. So, for example, you know, if you're a UK uh, grandma, it's like Stormzy, for example, we saw it in the 2017 elections. He'll have massive following of people who are less likely to engage in election. And just to sort of come back to Laura's point, I don't think it's that young people don't care about the issues that affect them. Of course, they care about whether they've got a decent roof over their shoulders. Of course, they care about whether they've got a job that pays them basic respect or dignity. The problem is, is whether they see traditional forms of politics as a vehicle to address the issues that they care about. And parts of the reasons why they don't is partly because we're not educated about how our democracy works. Partly it's about because our democracy needs to reform. So there's that. There's obviously the big distrust between politicians and people. Um, and then also representation. You know, like you look at the number of women in politics, uh, the number of ethnic minorities in politics, the number of people who from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So I think, you know, there are lots of reasons which have contributed to sort of this disengagement. When you involve an influencer or, or a tech company, what what works? What do you get them to do? What are the effective things for engaging young people? So the reason why we work with uh, tech companies, influencers, or some of these organisations that work with young people on mass is because our approach is really trying to identify where people go to in their day-to-day social and digital lives. So rather than creating a space called My Life, My Say and bringing and expecting people to come to you, so it's about thinking about how where do people go to in their day-to-day lives. So for example, when we worked with Tinder, you know, lots of young people use Tinder um, and everyone aged between 8 and 24, as you were swiping left or right, you would have got a notification a week before the deadline to register to vote to say, have you registered to vote? Swipe right. So you do go register to vote. Swipe left if you don't want to. Same thing with Uber. If you order the taxi within the first three minutes of ordering the taxi, you've got a notification to say, have you registered to vote? And that's one of the things that we're looking at. We're now looking at a new vote registration campaign. So we've got a few partnerships in the pipeline. And what we want to do is, is basically get them to do a push, push notification on their apps to get young people registered to vote, but also on the day of the election. Because what matters is not only getting young people registered to vote, but actually to vote. So on the day of the election to say, hey, it's election today. Have you thought about voting? And what effect does this generation turnout gap, what does it have on politics, who the politicians are targeting, and then the kind of policies that are are sold and then made? The Resolution Foundation is a think tank that mainly does economic research. So this look at turnout was a bit of a weird project for us. But the reason why we did it is because we were doing a big investigation of uh, intergenerational differences in living standards. So labour market, houses, um, pensions, things like that. And when you get to, we find these big differences. And when you get to thinking about what policies could help tackle that, how we need to change our tax system, our welfare state, how we need to change education, you get to the point where you 
politicians can only do that kind of thing if they can get the public to back them. And when you have much lower turnout among some of the people who will be the main beneficiaries of those policies, plus the fact that the baby boomers are so-called because there's really rather a lot of them, so they've got both lots of people and the highest turnout throughout their lives, actually, it's a really hard sell to politicians to say push this stuff because they're really worried it's not going to work very well for them on the doorstep. People don't just vote you know, narrowly for the interests of their age cohort, but it is a big factor. And as long as we have these big age-based turnout gaps, we're going to find it really hard to heal some of the intergenerational divides, which I think is one of the biggest economic and social challenges facing Britain. One of the issues that's been raised is around automatic voter registration. I mean, it seems to me, just for what it's worth, that you know, the onus should be on the government to make sure everybody, you know, who's eligible to vote can vote on election day rather than leaving it to people. Is that right? Would that make a difference? What, what do you think about that? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, so we sit on the government's National Democracy Council where we support them on their democratic engagement plan. And that's one what of is the, the National Democracy Council? So the National Democracy Council is a number of organisations which works with Cabinet Office. There's a range of different organisations, not just youth organisations, but uh, organisations that work with people with disabilities. Uh, we're one of them who work with young people, and we support them around, um, you know, making suggestions and policy advice around, you know, how to improve our democracy. Of course, <laughs> it's a bit more challenging when um, in the current sort of state of affairs. But, you know, one of the things that we have been pushing them on is automatic vote registration. I think we have to be a bit realistic. So I've now come to the point where, you know, there are some big things that I want to see happen, like you said, like automatic vote registration. But I think if we can get some good quick wins. So, for example, you know, when you're enrolling in university as part of your enrollment, you should be also asked to be registered to vote. And I think that would make a huge difference. You know, one of the things that we should look at doing as well is not only thinking about online voting. So for example, we don't have online voting. You have to vote at your local polling station. But I think what one of the things that people often forget is, you know, the world of work has changed. So for example, you know, historically, when you used to, to work, you had a nine to five working pattern um, and you was much more able to sort of come back to your home and to be able to vote. Whereas now people work from 11 to eight o'clock. So coming back to the local polling station could be a real struggle. So Would it help to vote at weekends? Well, I think if you look at countries around Europe, you see that it's, they've got a much more higher turnout. I mean, Germany, for example, and I think on the weekends, it, it definitely helps or making it at least a public holiday. I mean, I was a bit confused, actually, when the election was in the offing a couple of weeks back, because... Everybody always said, well, elections in Britain have to take place on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly it was being proposed for a Monday. So presumably it could take place on any day of the week. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I don't want to be too radical, but maybe go it on. could go over more than one day. Yeah, well, uh, well that's well, why, why don't you Saturday do and a Thursday Sunday. to Saturday yeah. and then people have the choice. And what have you got up your sleeve if, if there is a, a, an upcoming election, which looks uh, very likely whenever that might be? So this time around, we'll be rolling out a series of democracy cafes um, across the country. So what we do is we work with Starbucks nationally. And the idea is basically reigniting the 17th century discussing politics over coffee. So the idea is basically talking about politics over Frappuccino um, in a sort of a more cool way. We've had 84 of those in the last two years, more than 80% out of London. And um, so we will be ro rolling out a series of democracy cafes in the run up to the deadline to register vote. And then also just before the election, the whole point of the democracy cafes is very issue led. So it's very sort of less focused on policy and uh, sort of process. So it's very participant led. So when you're coming in, in the first point, you're just talking with your friends over coffee about the issues that you think are most important to you in your community. Um, and then the whole point is, is that what we try to do by the end of the democracy cafe is really try to show you that route 
about why democracy is and is it just because i and i just turn up to get my sort of skinny otachino or whatever it is and and i find it's sort of happening the the democracy cafe or do i need to go and find the democracy cafe so we will source young people to come to the democracy cafe of course we don't exclude and um, but one of the yeah. things we do is is work with charities that work with young people who are less likely to engage in politics so i come from a footballing background i used to be a scout for arsenal and for southampton football clubs have community foundations which work with loads of boys and girls from disadvantaged communities around employment and and volunteering opportunities and um, how do we work with those sort of partners to be able to get the right sorts of people along to these democracy cafes i mean what what can people listen to the podcast and they think this is something i'd like to get behind what what can they do? yeah we set, set a task for our listeners because they like to get involved and do things what should they go and do what we're going to be doing is is, is very similar to the turn up campaign um it will have a new name It'll be focused on working with influence. The turn up campaign was 2017. 2017 um, and also the 2016 referendum yeah. too. Um, what we're going to be doing is, is replicating that model, working with huge tech companies. So I guess for your listeners, one of the things that, you know, certainly uh, would be of use, massive help for us is, you know, this is a collective of youth organizations coming together, all focused on driving youth participation. And I think, you know, anyone who can support, you know, amplify our message, getting their family members, you know, sharing our social media assets, donating to our campaign, you know, these are all things that will make a huge difference or any organization or tech company or business that you know that can get out to, to their people would be of massive help. And to be clear, it's not a political campaign supporting one political party. It's a non-political campaign. That's correct. It's a non-political campaign solely focused on driving youth participation. And where do people go to find out more about it? So you can go to www.mylifemysay.org.uk. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. If if I was to uh, appoint you uh, joint ministers for elections, and are you going to have elections for the Jeffocracy? <laughs> I have some kind of sham elections. All oh, right, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. okay, that, that that'll get people motivated. Yeah. To vote, I'm sure. <laughs> like, what, uh, what is aside from abolishing the Jeffocracy? What what is the first thing you would do as as ministers for elections? I think I would uh, lower the voting age. That's come up a lot. That's pretty uncontroversial. Two Less- previous 16. episodes. Um, at least maybe 16, maybe 14. What I quite like, we lower the voting age enough that everybody has an election, at least a local or a, ideally a general election, while they're still in education. Rather than just shutting the schools so that they become polling stations, we get all the young people involved, help run in those polling stations, be engaged in that. And it's a little bit liberal, but I'd consider compulsory first-time voting. So you're not forced to turn out and vote every time. Oh, but because of that habit thing I talked about earlier, that getting into the habit being so important, as part of a citizenship education programme, as part of everybody being able to vote once while they're still in school, I think that is really worth considering <coughs> to get young people involved um, first time round. Meta? I think if I was a prime minister for a day or a minister for a day, I would go for automatic registration. The reason why is because I think it's a fundamental human right to be able to vote. And I think that everyone should have that right at their disposal. And I don't think that, you know, you should be at a point where you turn up to a polling station and you find out you're not registered to vote. Um, and I think it's a scandal that you can't even check online that you're registered to vote, um, that you have to go to a local authority. We're still, you know, basing things on very much paper based. So I would push for automatic vote registration. Lovely. All right, Laura Gardner, Meta Coburn. By the way, this bin, it's on Old Field Road. It's there sometimes and it's not there other times. I'll, I'll definitely check it out for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you very much.
We're going to speak now to Danielle Root, who is Associate Director for Voting Rights and Access to Justice at the Centre for American Progress. Danielle, hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. And, and can you give us an overview of voter registration? Does it vary a lot from state to state? Uh, we occasionally hear in the news about voter registration laws being used to suppress voting. Can you give, a, give us a picture of what that looks like in the U.S.? Absolutely. So many, many voting laws and voter registration laws vary across states. For voter registration in particular, we see a lot of obstacles in the voter registration process that make it difficult for many Americans, but particularly young people to get to the polls. So we see things like arbitrary voter registration deadlines, which require people to register to vote several weeks or even months prior to an election. We've also seen in some states requiring people to show proof of residency this is uh, prior to registering to vote. And this is particularly problematic for uh, young people who attend university. We've also seen in places like Kansas uh, requirements that individuals have to show proof of things like their birth certificate, uh, naturalization papers, and passports before they can register to vote. There seems to be an effort in some localities and jurisdictions to make the process of registering to vote, particularly for certain people and certain groups, much harder than it needs to be. So in recent years, states such as California and Oregon have introduced automatic voter registration or AVR, also known as motor voter laws. Tell us a bit about how that's worked and what impact it's had. Yeah, no, absolutely. So both California and Oregon have implemented AVR to great success. They've added thousands of new eligible voters to their voter registration list and updated the voter registration information of thousands more. So how the process works is officials facilitate voter registration by automatically registering Americans who are eligible to vote using the information that the state already has on hand. So let's say somebody walks into a Department of Motor Vehicles, DMV, to apply for or renew their driver's license. When they do this, they provide state officials with their name, their address, their birth date, other personal information, um, as well as an affirmation that they are U.S. citizens. Once the DMV receives that information, they automatically transfer it to state election officials who confirm that the information that they've received is accurate and correct. And then once they do that confirmation, they add that individual to the voter registration rolls. Through this process, the individual, him or herself, doesn't have to do any of the heavy lifting to register to vote. Instead, the burden is placed on the government, which is really how it should be um, when we're talking about fundamental rights like voting. So what impact have these changes had on voter turnout in these states? Is it possible to measure the impact? After implementing ABR in 2016, Oregon saw more than 272,000 new people being added to their state voter rolls. 98,000 of them uh, actually turned out in the 2016 election. It's also worth noting that roughly 37% of the people who were registered through Oregon's AVR program were under the age of 30, demonstrating how beneficial AVR is to um, young voters. That's a massive, massive number. 
It sounds like voter automatic voter registration is sort of moving ahead, at least in some states. We are struggling in a similar way to the US with uh, issues of turnout, particularly among younger people. Where is it going in the US, this AVR um, movement? And, and what do you think we can learn? ABR, uh, I think in its early days, I think any, any voting reform, um, is, is sort of met with some suspicion when it's first being, um, implemented and, and adopted, um, in the first few states. But we've seen broad support over the last two years across political parties for adopting automatic voter registration. I will say that sort of lessons learned and what the UK can take away is that I think that we need to start really pushing the idea that voting and participating in the democratic process is a right. It is not a privilege. It is a right and should be treated as such by government officials. I think a a lot of times government officials think that you should have to work hard to register and vote. But when we're talking about a fundamental right, like participating in our elections, the government should be doing everything in their power to help empower people to exercise that right um, and have a say in our elections. Just give us one little insight from the US. Our Electoral Commission has, to some controversy, started experimenting with this idea of voter ID. At the moment, you only have to turn up and essentially give your name to to, to vote. It's at the moment a pilot, uh, and it's not quite clear what's going to happen next to it. Just because people in Britain aren't used to the sort of impact of these things, where you have to present a driving license or a passport or or whatever – just give us a little primer for in terms of the US and the impact that has on on the number of people voting. So voter ID laws are incredibly harmful um, to voters and to sort of the foundation of our democracy. I think that, you know, the research has has shown time and time again that voter ID requirements prevent eligible people, but particularly people of color. So we've seen um, Native American uh, communities being disenfranchised. We've seen African-American voters being disenfranchised by strict voter ID requirements. Research has shown that strict voter ID laws can actually decrease voter participation by about two to three percentage points, which in close elections can be determinative of the outcome. It is, it is certainly not recommended by any voting advocates here in the United States. We would like to see voter ID requirements abolished. So I, I would caution the UK about adopting them because there's just no good comes from them. All right. Well, let's, let's hope we take your advice. Well, I think we're now uh, we're, we're completely sold on the motor voter laws. Uh, Danielle Root, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. So, do you think your bins are going to be emptied? <laughs> well, I know him now. If I see him in the street, I can talk to him about loose paving slabs. Poor guy. <laughs> I mean, he's going to forever regret doing this podcast. <laughs> I'll tell you what is as- as- astonishing yeah, your to-, bins. to me, yeah. apart from the bins, yeah. is that this... Like I don't understand the arguments against some of these things. So the automatic voter registration, lowering the voting age we've talked about before, not having an election on a weekday. It just doesn't seem to me like... It's almost like people don't want people to vote. Yes, exactly. But but people can't openly say that, can they? So what are the counter-arguments? 
I mean, against automatic voter registration, I just can't see what it would be. Well, it would have to be some kind of libertarian argument that people should have the choice. But what about not having an election on a weekend? What's the go? So we were talking, we did a bit of Googling and it turned out it's nice to, if there's a changeover of government, to give people a few days to move into Downing Street over a weekend. I mean, it's ridiculous. I I actually do support the weekend thing. I, I think over two days, Saturday and a Sunday. Yeah, I mean, look, some people working on Saturday and Sunday, but you know, it still would help, wouldn't it? Mm. I, I'm sure that's a good idea. I, I wonder whether this, the 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 sort of quasi planning that seemed to be happening in Downing Street for an election on Monday might open this debate up a bit. You know, you know what I mean? Because it's like, well, it's always assumed it's always on a Thursday. It's on a Thursday. It's like a sort of well, it turns out rather unwritten law, mm. but maybe it opens up the space. So, well, hang on a minute. If we can be on a Monday rather than a Thursday, it can be on a Saturday and a Sunday. Let's hope so. Let's hope some good comes of it. But in any case, I think we should set our listeners a challenge, which is not only registered to vote, we hope you're registered to vote, find a person you know who might not be registered to vote and get them to register, you know, and then report back to us on how your registration efforts have gone. We'll keep a register of registered voters. And it's odd that we've got Danielle talking about the US where things, there seems to be this head of steam towards making things easier. Whereas here, the Electoral Commission, if anything, they're, they're making it more difficult. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you've got thoughts uh, on this week's episode about voter registration or about other issues we should be covering, please do get in touch with us. We read every email, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. And please do subscribe so you make sure you don't miss an episode and also rate us because it makes us feel nicer about ourselves and also it means other people are more likely to find the podcast because of the way the weird ratings uh 
uh, sort of chart. Only rate us if you're going to give us five stars. Though. Well, that's a good point. If you're thinking it's more of a three or a four. Yeah, then, then don't bother. Then don't, don't bother. Yeah, you've yeah. got other things to do. You've got yeah. better things to do. And then. if you're going to review us, you know, if you, you're thinking of writing anything critical, then maybe don't put that negativity out into the world. Exactly. <laughs> just write something nice. That's good. Um, just a quick shout out uh, to Michael Watson. He wrote to us from Australia. Hi, Ed and Jeff. On this week's pod, you mentioned that you'd never done compulsory voting. I'm a trade unionist in Australia. I think it's a vital subject. However, I don't believe it can genuinely be discussed without also discussing things like how do you get on the electoral roll? When do you vote? I don't believe it's silly to suggest that midweek elections disenfranchise working people. In Australia, all polls are on a Saturday with two plus weeks of pre-polling early voting and you can go vote anywhere not just in your local polling station how easy is it to vote location identification and so on while a lot of the conversation about compulsory voting is around the freedom not to vote surely access to voting is more important noting you can always spoil your ballot anyway rant complete love the podcast michael watson so so we read your email we We read your email instantaneously Uh, and then this one comes from connie from north nottingham hello I just wanted to thank you both for helping me through my phase return to work after almost six months off due to anorexia. I've listened to all the episodes in just under two months and now feel a lot more relaxed in the mornings when I'm getting ready. On the subject of your latest episode, I feel like gambling should be seen as a mental health condition just like anorexia. Even though it took a spell of hospitalisation for me to finally get treatment, I'm fortunate enough to have a recognised if misunderstood condition. Gambling, on the other hand, is seen as a personal choice. Nobody chooses to be unhealthy or unhappy, though, and I hope that in future those who suffer from any kind of addiction are viewed as sympathy and treated appropriately by medical professionals rather than being as a burden on society. She also adds, listening to your podcast has convinced me that in a perfect world, all policies would be decided by those with experience on the subject. For example, policies on gambling addiction would be discussed, voted on and decided by experts on addiction, the loved ones of addicts and those who have experienced addiction themselves. I feel that people will be far more engaged with democracy and decision-making if this were the case. I actually think the Jeffocracy would be great. Me so you too. like this, yeah. as Jeff delegates all his decisions to the experts. Best wishes, Connie. Thank you, Connie. I'll be, uh, I don't know what honours system we'll have in the Jeffocracy, but you'll be getting something. The order of the Jeff? <laughs> yes. This <comes>. The Oog. <laughs> the Oog. We should start giving that out on the podcast to the, listeners. The Oog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. We, we should have a podcast honours system. Do you not think, for like a, a, a hypothetical Jeffocracy honours system, uh, if people want to write in with suggestions of what the different levels of honour should be? Well, you've got uh, the Order of the Jeff, the, the Oog. Oog. Yep, yep. Uh, sort of Member of the Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds a bit peculiar. <laughs> the Moog. <laughs> the, the Mog, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe not the Mog. Uh, uh, yeah. um, uh, maybe not the Member of the Jeff. Let's set this as a task. Commander of the Jeff, yeah, the let, Cog. Yeah, let's set, set this as a task. For our listeners, what should the honours system be in the Jeffocracy? This comes from Paula in Budapest, who says, "Um, Neither of my parents were born in the UK, nor were any of my grandparents, but I had always considered myself completely British. Now, this is on the subject of the Empire episode we did. Your guest commented that people who were born in parts of the British Empire that were not within the British Isles were 
likely to be considered migrants to the UK, even though they were British citizens. It was humbling to hear Professor Bambra spell this out and to reflect on what this means for me personally. I realise that the big exception is those of us whose families were part of the British occupation, meaning the white British people who lived and worked in the inverted colonies. My father was born in India, as were his parents, and they were never considered Indian or migrants, but only ever British. Uh, there's no sense in which I am second generation British or any other such term which is often used to apply to people from, for example, Bangladesh or India whose parents moved to the UK. That is a, it's a good point. Really, um, really important. And Paula also says a reason to be cheerful. An extraordinary school just opened its doors uh, to its first students in Budapest. My son is 11 years old and is one of the students. The real school is a green school committed to sustainability and teaching children about the challenges facing the world today while providing them with the skills they need for the future not as the world was in my childhood or my parents childhood sounds good sounds good remember to rate us five stars send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast all right time for something new on the podcast this is called cheerful people and this is basically just an as, innovation. It is an innovation, but it's also us just using this as an excuse yeah. to get people who we, we like what they're doing. It can be activism. It can be the work they're doing. It can just be people we're interested in having a conversation with and they wouldn't return our phone calls yeah. unless it was for the podcast. Uh, so this is a, a new section of the podcast where we just talk to people who, who we're interested in, who are making the world a slightly better place exactly. through what they're doing. And uh, with us... We have Anna Taylor, who is co-founder of the UK Student Climate Network. Hello, Anna. Hi. Um, t- tell us about tell us about you then. How how did you get involved in this? What was the moment for you where you thought that you know the the climate is something we need to be thinking seriously about? Um, I've always been interested in it. I think maybe I was interested in it earlier on than most people. What sort of age um, then? Oh, I for my entire life, as far as I can remember, like I was brought up, kind of you know going for lots of walks and countryside and stuff. So I was very connected to the environment then. And, you know, my dad always used to point out like the litter and we used to go to the mountains and, you know, look at the receding glaciers. And I was always very aware about climate change. And I always wanted to do something about it. Like my dream when I was 12 years old was to work in Greenpeace. And I tried to volunteer there and they rejected me because I was too young. Damn. No. I was very upset. Um, but then by the age of 17, I was in the Greenpeace offices again, planning for the climate strikes. So it all worked out okay in the end. And how much was Greta Thunberg the, the sort of inspiration for this? And do you sort of remember first hearing about it? Or yeah. was it being planned anyway? So it was actually um, the series of protests in London around this time last year they started that really just provided the opportunity for me to get involved. So it was Extinction Rebellion, Campaign Against Climate Change, did another march. Um, and it was the wave of climate strikes across the world. So it wasn't so much Greta herself, but it was, you know, watching the Australian students go out on strike all on the other side of the world and realise that we had this common goal and this common concern. And that is what inspired me to do the same thing in the UK, because I realised why aren't the UK students going out on strike? This is one issue that does not have borders, and it's something we should be doing more about. What do you remember about that first strike? 
I remember it being better than I ever hoped it could be. I remember. How did it even start? I mean, what, what, so, so, so you've explained sort of what gave yeah. you the inspiration, but then what did you do next? Yeah, I mean, a lot so of people might I think, called up a friend and I yeah. said, hey, have you heard about these climate strikes? I want to start some in the UK. And she was like, I'm up for that. So we went and we sat down in a costa in Camberwell and we started drafting plans for like how we could use social media to get kids involved. We set up a Facebook event. And then we met every week for two months, setting up a website and stuff. Um, and then we had our first strike on the 15th of February. And how did you spread that? So you, you beyond, your, beyond your school, we were there. We were there. We were, we were there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, social media. It's very useful. Yeah. <laughs> we just used Facebook, Instagram. Um, we got adverts out on Snapchat through other organisations. And the word just spread. We handed out posters and flyers. And could you tell from, yeah. you know, the number of likes or comments or whatever, could you tell, oh, this this is this is spiralling, this is going to be bigger than we, we mm. thought? Actually, I wasn't entirely sure. I think a lot of it spread through word of mouth. So someone asked me in an interview a week before the first strike, they said, how many people are you expecting? And I said, maybe 1,000 in London at, you know, a really big ambitious estimate um and maybe five thousand across the country and in the end we had five thousand in london alone and fifteen thousand across the country on the first strike and i remember turning up to parliament square on that day and just being overwhelmed by this joy because i was like look how many people are here it was way bigger than i ever thought it would be and it gave me a lot of was it very scary wasn't was it very sort of scary doing it or did you just feel not no it's the kind of thing you're really just focused on the moment you don't have time to think ahead And because we crammed so much planning into two months, it was just working every single day and every night on that. Like I did not rest at all for those two months. It wasn't scary. I think, you know, compared to the fear we feel when we think about climate change and the frustration we feel when we realise that the government isn't doing anything about it, um, there's no fear there about actually striking. It's more just ambition and feeling empowered. We need a blue plaque in the Costa and Camberwell, don't we? Definitely. Where, yeah, I, where I think we should. Began, or a green plaque. Yeah, yeah. a green uh, one. Uh, yeah. Where it all began. So it's now, go- it's gone global, but it's now going sort of explicitly to adults. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the plans for Friday the 20th of September. Well, on the 20th of September, we're hoping to have the biggest global strike in world history. Um, it will be the biggest climate strike, but also it's a global strike, which means hundreds of countries across the world are going out on strike at the same time. So the student strikers are calling on the public to join them. Basically, because we've been striking for you know several months now, just over a year since Greta did her first strike. And although we have made some significant progress, the progress isn't what we wanted it to be. And it's not enough, given the short time frame. And we need the public to come out with us in order to create that extra push and the extra momentum we need. And what kind of reaction have you had to that to that wider call? I found that the general public are harder to mobilise than students. It's harder to get the word out because social media is just so easy to use when it comes to mobilising students. And also, I think students feel the fear and the pressure of climate change a lot more. So it's a lot easier for them to feel like they really connect to the issue. But there has been a lot of press around the student strikes, and that's definitely helped the public consider striking more. And have you heard from yeah. any any unions or workplaces where people have said, OK, we're on board, count us in? Yeah, um, Amazon employees are going out on strike. Lush employees are going out on strike. The TUC released a statement saying they support it. 
Uh, so we have heard from a lot of businesses. And is it the whole yeah. day that you're asking people to do? If they can do, are people going to do part of the day? How how's it going to? There work? are different options. Yeah. So ideally, the whole day would be amazing, but also even a thirty minute walkout would be great, or a two hour break during lunch if you can attend a march a march during your lunch break. That's better than nothing. And also for doctors that can't strike for obvious reasons, and um, we're asking them to hold up a placard just saying they support it and post a picture of that on social media. And what will the day look like for you? Um, I think and the days before, be, indeed. Yeah, the days before will be stressful but familiar because we've done this so many times now. It kind of feels like familiar territory. You know, the days leading up to the strike have so much pressure and anticipation in them and work. And then... The actual day itself has never disappointed me once. I think this has particular significance for me because, you know, we our first strike was in February, so it's been over six months now. And people used to say to me back in February, they said, you'll never keep this going. You know, this movement's going to die out within two months. And I'm thinking, well, it's not dying out because our biggest strike is going to be in September. So it'll be quite an emotional day for me, I think. And you'll be in Parliament Square in London? Grown. Yeah, yeah, I'll be in London. And... You're then going to university the next day, yeah. literally the next day, uh, Saturday the 21st. Do you think the the sort of movement in the UK, kind of, are, there, are there more Anna Taylors coming along? Yeah, there are loads more. Um, I think that's the reason it's, you know, grown so much. I couldn't have done this all by myself. There have been so many people working really hard alongside me on this. And so many people in every city, to be honest, like there are strikes in different towns and cities. There are so many of those out there. Yeah. So lastly, what do we what do you want people to do? I mean, you want people to come and join the the strike on the 20th. Mm -hmm. Um, How can people find out more? Where should they go? What you know, maybe there'll be people listening to this saying, I want to volunteer. I want to help. I want to organize some of the adults to come yeah, out or I want to do. be part of, do, how, how do people get involved um our website ukscn.org has a lot of information on it so you can find all of that also if you google um global climate strike on the 20th you'll be able to find other articles as well including on 350's website as well the 350.org yeah anna taylor thank you very cheerful much for being pers- our first cheerful person <laughs> cheerful person and we're going to go and get the green plaque organized aren't we That'd be great. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. Ooh, we're in the outro. And I've got something to, to mention. Oh, uh, yes. We got a message from Sam Williams on... Message in a bottle. ...on Facebook. Well, it, was, it wasn't in a bottle, it was oh, on Facebook. Okay. But it was good news because you are almost top of the pops. Really? You're straight in with a bullet at number two. Wow. Of the list of politicians who have mentioned climate change the most. Wow. Did you know this? I didn't. So, uh, you it's know... a revelation. Yeah, so all you've got to do is... This is in the House of Commons, is it? Yeah, but if you get up and say, a few more times you could you could be there at number one next next year do a bit of bobbing who was number one ed davey all right former energy and climate secretary i think you can take him down okay just say it a few more times well i'll do my few months i'll do my best but it's the sort of you know it's good we need more people talking about it don't we yeah um so we should thank our guests Laura Gardner from the Resolution Foundation and Meta Coburn from My Life, My Say, also my local councillor, and Danielle Root, uh, Associate Director for Voting Rights and Access to Justice at the Centre for American Progress. And I'd like to thank Anna Taylor. She was wonderful. Get on that climate strike. Absolutely. 
Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Ed Seed produced our music. James Deacon did our idents. Our announcer is Gail Lofthouse. And our graphics were done not by Emily, Emily Power, <laughs> but by Henry Cole. But by Henry Cole. Yeah. But we're keeping Emily Power <laughs> around the place for how a, long though for a, for a bit longer i know but well okay well we could do you not feel it feels in some way disrespectful to henry cole our graphics used to be done by emily, emily power, power. <laughs> and they're now done by henry cole he's been a new entry at number two he's been top of the pops and these have been reasons to be cheerful hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.